0: Hi, everyone. Welcome to Women in the Word. I love Women in the Word. I love being here. I hope you do as well. I'm Shelly Davis, part of the teaching team. And um, how exciting is our study of Romans? It's pretty great, isn't it? Uh, it, You know, as I studied the scriptures uh, the last uh, couple of months, this particular Uh, portion of scripture reminded me of something when I was growing up. And I had great parents, great parents, sweet mom, sweet dad, Uh, but we weren't believers and we weren't churchgoers. But a couple of times a year, for some reason, my dad would decide, we're going to church this Sunday. And here's the funny thing. It was never Easter or Christmas because in his mind, if you only went Easter or Christmas, you were a hypocrite. So you could go twice another time of the year and you weren't a hypocrite, but not Easter or Christmas. And one of the things I remember the most about those twice a year church experiences, was in the car on the way home, he would always comment, gosh, it makes me good, feel good to be in church. And it wasn't until I was older that I really realized what he was saying. It made him feel like a good person. Like, driving the speed limit or paying his taxes. The other thing he would say is that being there twice a year kept him on the membership roll and that made him feel like a good person as well. It was all of it was an outward expression of religion without any inner transformation. The good news my family is over the next couple of decades we did all experience that inner transformation and my sweet dad is with Jesus today I'm very happy about that Uh, yeah as we continue with Paul in Romans chapter 2 we're going to see Paul directly addressing the Jews because they were feeling pretty good about themselves too. They liked being good people because of their outward appearance of religion, their check the box behaviors. So open your Bibles with me. Romans chapter two, we are gonna start reading in verse 17. And I'm in the wrong book. Maybe I should turn to Romans. having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth." So this is Paul's signature one long sentence that goes on and on and in that one long sentence he starts out here by calling the Jews out by name and that identifies not only their nationality but their great heritage as descendants of Abraham through Isaac. Unfortunately, their heritage had become a bit of a stumbling block because it was now a great source of pride and complacency in their relationship with God. You know, Misty was here last week and she talked about God's wrath and mankind's wickedness. And up to this point, Paul has been condemning everyone, Jews and Gentiles alike, in chapters 1 and 2. But right here, his changes to a little more severe and he kind of begins to shake his finger a little bit at God's own people about sin and God's judgment as he directly addresses them here. He begins by calling them out for their religious arrogance and their self-righteous behavior you know, in their world being called a Jew and known as a Jew in the marketplace and in the community was an identity they really relished because it said to everyone, they had a unique and a special relationship with God. They had a high degree of confidence in God's favor on them. They were the only recipients of God's divine instructions. So they recognized that they had a way of knowing God that was different from the rest of the world and that fueled their pride as his people. They even knew that he had set them apart to be an example to the world. That's what Paul lays out here. They should be a guide to the blind, a light in the darkness, an instructor, to the foolish and the young. These are amazing privileges and responsibilities that God has given only to them, but their pride and their arrogance are the downside to those blessings. And the Jews had a lot of pride and arrogance in their privileged relationship with the Lord. In fact, So much so that they actually had disdain for the Gentiles around them that didn't have that special privilege with the Lord. They were known to call the Gentiles dogs in disdain. But in spite of their arrogance and their boastfulness, Paul's purpose here is not really to bash his fellow Jews. His purpose He wants his audience, his fellow Jews to understand that religion and heritage and pride are not the way to a transformed heart and a better relationship with the living God. So let's keep on with Paul's words. Look at verse 21. You then... "...who teach others, do you not teach yourself while you preach against stealing? Do you steal? You who say that one must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law dishonor God by breaking the law. For it is written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you." My uh, oldest son is a trial lawyer, and as his parents, we suspected that that was his calling at a very young age because he always laid out his plans or explained his misbehavior like it was a, co- a case before the Supreme Court, and we were simply the opposing counsel that didn't have all the facts. Um, Paul is a great trial lawyer here and that's really what he's doing, laying out his case and here he cross-examines his arrogant audience with some very pointed questions. Do you teach yourselves or just others? Do you steal? Do you commit adultery? Do you rob and dishonor God? If there was even one small hint of a thing that they could not say, no, we don't do that They were lawbreakers, they were lawbreakers. And as lawbreakers, they were subject to God's judgment regardless of their religious heritage, regardless of their privileged relationship with him, They were still lawbreakers and through their hypocritical behavior of not applying their own teaching to themselves, their gentle neighbors saw it. Their gentle neighbors were turned away from God instead of to God. It caused their gentle neighbors to hate God and to totally disregard their God because of it. Okay, keep reading with me. Look at verse 25. For circumcision indeed is of value if you obey the law. But if you break the law, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. So if a man who is uncircumcised keeps the precepts of the law... Will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? Then he who is physically uncircumcised but keeps the law will condemn you who have the written code and circumcision but break the law. For no one is a Jew who is merely one outward, nor is circumcision outward and physical but a Jew is one inwardly and circumcision is a matter of the heart by the spirit, not by the letter. His praise is from man, not from man, but from God. Um, I've spent my whole life raising boys. Most of you probably know I have three sons and six grandsons. So I, I always think that's why I get the uh, chapters where I have to say circumcision a dozen times. Yeah. yeah, but let's talk about circumcision in Paul's world for just a minute. In Paul's world, circumcision had great, great significance because it was the outward physical sign of the covenant that God had made with Abraham. Look at Genesis 17. And God said to To Abraham, as for you, you shall keep my covenant and your offspring after you throughout the generations. This is my covenant, which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. That was God's own instructions to them and the Jews were almost as proud of their heritage of circumcision as they were of the law because circumcision was that very visible reminder of God's privilege, of God's covenant and many believed that it exempted them from God's judgment and his wrath. As long as they didn't break too many laws, as long as they kept most of it and were circumcised, they were good. But Paul makes it plain here that nothing could be more wrong or further from the truth. Circumcision means nothing to God if it's merely a label, if it's not evidence of a changed life before him. I don't know whether any of you have ever had the experience of taking a canned good that, say, had the label of peas on the front of it, a beautiful picture of peas, and you opened that can, and it was green beans. It wasn't peas. If you did, you know that picture of peas on the front did nothing to change those green beans into peas, did it? You can look at that picture That you've still got green beans. The label of circumcision on every Jewish man implied obedience to God. But just having the label on that Jewish man actually had no power to change his disobedient heart. And without an obedient heart to the Lord, that label of circumcision was meaningless. God never intended for circumcision to absolve the Jews from obedience or for absolve them from judgment for their disobedience. And here's Paul's most shocking news to uh, his fellow Jews. Obedience in the life of a Gentile, someone who didn't have that physical labor, that mark of circumcision, would actually cause God to regard them in the same light as a circumcised Jew. And that really is an astounding statement for his fellow Jews who consider themselves superior to the Gentiles in every way. Paul seems to be redefining here what it truly means to be a Jew. God's chosen people. It's not the outward symbols. It's not the physical marking on your body or the checklist of checking off their uh, religious rules. It's about the heart. Paul wants them to continue to understand it's about a spirit of obedience to the Lord that your heart has been changed by and by the Spirit of God. Now I would have sympathy for Paul's Jewish audience here and say wow that's a shocker for them as they take in the truth that that outward label of circumcision is not going to absolve them from God's judgment except that Moses and the prophets have been talking to them about obedience of the heart for centuries. Look at Deuteronomy 36. This is Moses And the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul that you may live. And the prophet Jeremiah Jeremiah 4.4 says, circumcise yourselves to the Lord, remove the foreskin of your hearts, O men of Judah and inhabitants of Jerusalem, lest my wrath go forth like fire and burn with none to quench it because of the evil of your deeds. God truly delights most in obedience of the heart, not obedience to religious rituals or checklists or symbols or outward shows of piety according to God's, Paul's words, a God-fearing obedient Gentile was more pleasing to God than a disobedient circumcised Jew who simply boasted in that privileged relationship with God. You know and as believers Paul's words have to speak to us as well We have to look and think, what are we basing our relationship with God on? Is it like my dad thinking being on the membership role was good? Regular church attendance, generous giving, our spiritual checklist, constant serving. All of those things are part of the life of a disciple. And they can all be very good things in our lives. But without a transformed heart. Without a heart that has a spirit of obedience to the living God, without a heart that has been changed by the Holy Spirit, we can become self-righteous hypocrites as well. That's the face we have to be careful not to show the world. One of my grandsons was born with a pretty serious congenital heart condition. So from the time he was a newborn, we had to do an EKG on his heart every single day to make sure he was not in heart failure. And it was this crazy little device that we would put on that tiny little guy's chest every day and it transmitted his EKG to the doctors to make sure he wasn't in heart failure. When he was two and a half the doctors did a miraculous procedure that transformed his sick heart into an incredibly healthy heart. You know God does the exact same thing for us through the work of his Holy Spirit. Paul knew it. Paul had experienced it. His heart had been transformed into a healthy, obedient heart by the power of the Holy Spirit. You know, just like my sweet little grandson, we all need a heart check every day as well. We have to examine our hearts every day for evidence of our obedience and then cast out any superficial, boastful, religious checklist and submit to the transforming work that the Holy Spirit does in our lives second by second, moment by moment. That's how we have a transformed heart. And you know, the condition of our heart really matters. It should matter to us and it certainly matters to our God. Okay, let's read some in chapter 3. Look at verse 1 with me. Then what advantage has the Jew? Or what is the value of circumcision? Much in every way. To begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. What if some were unfaithful? Does their faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God? By no means let God be true, though everyone were a liar, as it is written, that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. So Paul has laid out his argument here before his jury that it's hearts of obedience that matter, not religious ceremonies. He's made the argument that an obedient Gentile has the same standing before God as a circumcised Jew. But even though that's true, Paul still reminds his audience that God himself did make a distinction between Jews and Gentiles because only the Jews were entrusted with God's very words. What a privilege that is. I've thought about that so much in the last few weeks. What it is like to back then to have been chosen uh, for that privilege. But That privilege does not help them if they don't follow God's word, if they don't trust God's word, if they don't believe his words. And Paul knows that the question he's probably going to face from his Jewish audience is, hey, should we worry now that God is going to renege on his promises to us because some of us have been unfaithful because we've neglected obedience to the God that gave us his word? And Paul's answer is an unequivocal no here. Absolutely not. Yes many Jews have been unfaithful many have refused to repent of sin while clinging only to the rituals and many of course rejected Jesus as the Messiah when he appeared even though their own prophets predicted it for centuries but nothing that the Jews have done changes who God is. The unfaithfulness of the Jews will never nullify the faithfulness of God. He is faithful. It's his character. It is impossible for God to be unfaithful. And every Jew has the opportunity to inherit every promise of their faithful God through repentance and faith. They may have been unfaithful in the past, but they have the opportunity at any point to turn and repent. Look at Isaiah 55. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thought. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him and to our God for he will abundantly pardon. So Paul's answer to those who say what's the point of being a Jew if we don't get a get out of jail free card for our unfaithfulness if we are not exempt from judgment and Paul's answer is God is faithful and he will absolutely fulfill every promise he made to the nation of Israel even if there are unfaithful unbelieving Jews who don't. Turn back to him. And Paul makes it clear that anyone that argues that God is unfaithful is definitely a liar. He quotes David here from Psalm 51, a great psalm of repentance when David turned back to the Lord because David knows that when it comes to God's faithfulness, he will prevail. God's word will always come to pass. As the saying goes, Time will tell. Okay, let's see what else Paul has to say. Look at verse five. But if our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, what shall we say? That God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us? I speak in a human way, by no means. For then how could God judge the world? But if through my lie, God's truth Abounds to his glory, why am I still being condemned as a sinner? And why not do evil that good may come? As some people slanderously charge us with saying their condemnation is just. Now, throughout Romans, Paul talks about righteousness. We're going to see that over and over again. For us, righteousness is a right relationship with God, right standing with him. God's righteousness is his holy and perfect character. And only God is inherently righteous. And all of us as sinners fall woefully short of God's righteousness. But through faith and faith alone in our Lord Jesus Christ, God gives to us or credits us. The theological word is impute. He imputes his righteousness to us. It's the only way that we can have that right standing before God, that right relationship with God, and show his righteousness, not our righteousness, but his righteousness to the world around us. Look at Romans 1.17. For in it, and Paul's speaking of the gospel, for in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. That is how we live out God's righteousness, is by faith. And righteousness is what Paul addresses next here. He anticipates the Jews' next question to him as he lays out his argument. They question whether their unrighteousness, which that is sin and wrongdoing, that's what that word means, actually serves the purpose of highlighting God's righteousness much like a jeweler that lays out a black cloth on the counter and then places that brilliant diamond on it the darkness of the cloth shows up the brilliance of the diamond their crazy argument is hey if our unrighteousness is purposeful if it shows God's righteousness isn't God unrighteous to punish it? After all, it serves a good purpose. Um, And if God condones our unrighteousness, then how could he possibly ever judge sin? Because sin is good. Um, It's a... Circular argument. Paul calls it a human argument here because it's kind of one of those arguments that we make that absolutely can never apply to a holy God. It is not possible for God to overlook sin for any reason because of his righteous character. God can overlook the lack of circumcision in a Gentile because. It is, there is no requirement for Gentiles to be circumcised, but he can never overlook sin, even in his own people, the Jews, simply because they believe it might point up his righteousness. God will not absolve the Jews from his judgment, even if they suggest that their sin possibly benefits him. That is a human straw man argument that turns Paul's gospel message, his whole purpose of writing Romans is his gospel message of salvation by grace through faith. It turns that whole message into a license to sin. We have to sin. We should sin. It shows God's great righteous character. The gospel is never licensed to sin. So instead of arguing that their disobedience actually benefits God and should save them from his judgment, Paul's audience would be so much better served by rejoicing that God is righteous because God's righteous character means that he's always faithful. He's always going to keep his promises to them. And that actually is our message too, We need to rejoice in God's righteousness as well. We need to spend a lot less time trying to argue our way out of sin or justify our sin. We need to rejoice in God's perfect righteousness because it is that righteousness that allows us to know he's also perfectly faithful to keep his promises God's righteousness matters because it is the essence of who he is and that allows us to trust in every one of his promises. Okay, let's read a little bit more of Paul's argument. Look at verse 9. What then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all, for we've already been charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin, as is written. None is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside, together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. This is the conclusion to the argument that Paul has been making that he started in chapter one and has gone on in chapter two. This is his conclusion. And notice that he identifies himself with the Jews. Here he says, are we Jews better off than the Gentiles because we had God's word, we have his covenant, we have his promises? And his answer again is an unequivocal no, absolutely not. All, everyone, Jews and Greeks are under the power and the condemnation of sin. One theologian I read said the problem with people is not just that they commit sin. Their problem is that they are enslaved to sin. Now, last week, Misty did a great job of pointing out that as believers, we are no longer enslaved to sin. We've been saved by grace through faith in Christ, set free from sin, forgiven for past sins. So Paul is not talking about believers here, but he's talking about all humanity because all humanity, including God's privileged people, the Jews, need a Savior. Before Christ, before faith in Christ, all are depraved sinners, including you and me before our relationship with Christ. That's our past identity, a depraved sinner. So Paul uses this collection of Old Testament scriptures as his closing argument to make his point to the jury without the gospel all humanity will remain depraved sinners. And he makes 14 different indictments here of all people by quoting several Psalms and the prophets Isaiah and Jeremiah. He starts out by using Psalm 14 here to make his point that everyone is guilty, all have turned aside. No one does good. Rather than turning to God with the needs of their heart met, all humanity, we fill our longings with destructive substitutes, with idols, with things that are worthless and meaningless, leaving everyone more empty than ever. Um, Verse 12 ends by saying, not even one, and that is a statement that stresses that there is not a single exception in the entire human race. Past, present, future. No one circumcised, no one uncircumcised. And then Paul moves on to describe the vileness of different parts of our bodies here. He starts out with the mouth, the throat, the tongue, the lip, because so much of wickedness comes out of our mouth through our speech. Our plots and our plans and our anger and our ridicule all flow out through our mouth. As sinners, our speech is corrupted, deceptive, poisonous, uh, venomous with cursing and bitterness. You know, um, vile words are so mainstream today. You know, words that my grandmother never had heard uttered in public, are now all over every movie and in every song that you hear on the radio. After the mouth, Paul moves on to different parts of the body that influence our conduct and our actions, our feet which take us down, paths of destruction, ruining lives, eyes which lead lose sight of God, abandoning any reverence of him. Um, Paul's argument that we are all enslaved to sin, Jews and Gentiles, it shows the progression here from talking about sin to committing sin to losing um, every uh, losing sight of any reverence of God. Fearing God is the foundation. An essence of a godly person and it's so sad that that is where sin takes us to disregard him look at Proverbs 1 7 the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge fools despise wisdom and instruction and Ecclesiastes 12 says the end of the matter all has been heard fear God and keep his commandments for this is the whole duty of God So Paul's roadmap chronicling the depravity of man shows that sin has corrupted every single part of a sinner's life. You know if you were to say hey it's my mouth that I sin with and put duct tape over your mouth your feet could still take you down the path of sin apart from Christ there's nothing anything nothing anyone can do to commend themselves to a holy and living God and Paul's roadmap to depravity here also leaves no room for his Jewish audience to argue with him that um, this contradicts their heritage. They're God's privileged people. They have a covenant with God in the Old Testament because his argument here all comes from the Old Testament. Depravity and universal sin is what Paul makes sure they recognize. So let's finish. Look at verse 19 with me. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. Now Paul includes himself here again with the Jews when he says now we know and then he tells them what they know. What he, what he knows and what he wants them to know is that even those who were given God's law, who were accountable to God's law, could not claim exemption from sin and judgment. The law was never a talisman that they could sometimes ignore sometimes obey but they could always point back to as evidence of their privilege that they were better. The law was given to show God's standards for holiness and all humanity's inability to live up to them including those who were first entrusted with it because it's everyone's inability to keep the law that points to everyone's need for the gospel. That's where the law should take you straight to your need for the gospel. Look at Galatians 2.15. We ourselves are And Romans 3.23 says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Paul's words as he finishes argument here that everyone is a sinner and everyone needs the gospel are a great reminder to us as to why this word unrighteousness should matter. Unrighteousness, which means sin and wrongdoing, it matters for two reasons. The first one is I hope that as we think about unrighteousness in the world by all humanity that it reminds us that we have a responsibility to share the gospel. The world needs to know that the unsaved sinners around all of us in our community need to hear the same good news that Paul is committed to preaching here centuries ago you know, if we had the cure to cancer, if you somehow stumbled upon it today, what would you want to do? You would want the world to know um, you had the cure to cancer. Guess what? We know how to overcome death through faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, spiritual death. So we can't keep the gospel a secret. That's what unrighteousness should remind us of. And it, should also remind us as we think about unrighteousness we still have a sin nature uh, even though we are saved by grace through faith. Last week Misty was completely transparent about her sin nature. uh, She told a great story about how she became angry at her neighbor who had followed and threatened her kids and she kind of lost her mind and, um, you know, just really revealed uh, that she has a sin nature just like I do. And I've known Misty for decades. She has a completely transformed heart, a dynamic walk with the Savior. But she gave us a great example, personal example, from her own life that just like me and you, sometimes our sin nature wins out over our transformed heart. Our unrighteousness sneaks out there, doesn't it? Um, We still need God's grace and mercy because every now and then our unrighteousness does sneak out. So in light of Paul's teaching about the true nature of humanity, let's be convicted. Let's be convicted that we need to be prepared to share the gospel. Let's don't keep it a secret. And we need to be convicted of our own sin nature and be willing to repent. Be willing to repent and accept God's grace, mercy, and forgiveness. It's there for us at the cross. He offers it freely to us because of our faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. Unrighteousness matters because in our lives and in the world, it always points back to the gospel. Look at Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It's the gift of God, not a result of work, so that no one can boast. Unrighteousness always leads us back to the gospel. Pray with me. Father, you are a righteous God, a gracious God, a forgiving God. You are a God who has given us the free gift of salvation. And I pray that each one of us would um, be convicted of the world's need for our Lord Jesus Christ. And you would prepare each and every one of us to be bold in our faith, Uh, to be articulate about you and about our stories and what you've done for us. I thank you for these great women, their love for you, their love for each other, their love for your word. And I ask for your continued favor and blessing on all of us. And I pray this in the name of our Lord Jesus. Amen.